The following podcast contains explicit language. Blue lights start a blank and those handcuffs click. You know who to call and you better call quick. Saul, Saul, you better call Saul. You'll fight for your rights when your back's to the wall. Stick it to the man, justice for all. You better call Saul. Hello and welcome to Slate's TV Club podcast about Better Call Saul. I'm June Thomas, editor of Outward, Slate's LGBTQ blog, and I'm here in the Slate studio, an unexpected pleasure today, with Seth Stevenson. Hey, Seth. Hey, June. How you doing? I am very well, thank you. A little disappointed by this final episode, uh, but we can get to that. Today we are talking about episode 10, the season finale. It was called Marco. I was expecting you to say Polo then. <laughs> I was a little slow on the draw today, June. <laughs> oh. Pimento, Marco Pimento. <laughs> I didn't know what that game was. And so when when Americans started saying that, I was like, what the hell are you talking Why do you keep saying Polo? We're talking about 100-year-old explorer, June, who yeah. pioneered the Silk Route. Him I know. But yelling Polo? <laughs> no, don't know much about that. Um, okay. We're talking about Marco, the episode, and I guess Marco, the man. Uh, but first, let's talk about some of those listener challenges from last week, shall we? Yes. We had a few listener challenges from last week. The first was you wanted to know whether the matchbook was in a, as you put it, a urinal, yes. which I gather is how the Brits say urinal, yes. or a, a sunk, which is how the Brits <laughs> say sink. And uh, people responded that, in fact, that was a urinal. Yes. And I think actually most of, the, even though you can't really read tone in emails, I think the most of the uh, emails were written with the tone, yeah, duh, it's a urinal. Yes, although I feel I, one of our listeners, and I, I apologize, I'm not remembering which listener it was now, but someone wrote in and pointed out that metaphorically, Jimmy has been was being pissed on that entire episode. That is in so In fact, it, it's as though his existence was at the base of a urinal and that he was experiencing uh, uh, almost a Chicago sunroof, if you will. <laughs> if you uh, will. He was experiencing uh, a rain of of yeah. urine-like uh, feelings right. from the people around him. The world was making it rain, golden rain. <laughs> golden, um, it's, it's, a golden, it's a golden shower, James. On Jimmy, term. yes. So anyway, that was a urinal. And then yes. our second listener challenge was why, what was the significance of Office 312, which was the office that Jimmy requested back when he thought that he was in the good graces of HHM and was in fact going to become a partner track uh, lawyer there. And he was all set Mm -hmm. to take up residence in an office. And he specifically requested 312. We asked, what is the significance of that number? And we got a few responses on that. Mm -hmm. Most people pointed out that it is the Chicago area code, which... Yeah. Yeah. Well, and in fact, I think there's even more nuance, Gene, which is that someone pointed out that it used to be the Cicero, Illinois uh, area code back in the Slippin' Jimmy days. Mm -hmm. It would have been the area code for Cicero, although now it is no longer the area code for Cicero, but it's still the area code for Chicago. So there would be an aspirational element to that number. There might be. Maybe he's aspiring to move to downtown Chicago, or maybe it's just, you know, remembrance of things past. The, right, right. The, the, you know, the Ham's beer is his Madeline. It's Madeline. <laughs> his, is that how you pronounce that? Madeline? Madeline. His, his, his Proustian. Madeline. His Proustian objet is, yeah. is the Ham's beer of that bar. Well, and someone pointed out that if you look at the Better Call Saul Twitter feed, the official one, that is, um, it gives Jimmy McGill's or James McGill's email address as jamesmcgill312 at earthlink.net. Now, I sent an email to that address asking, of course you did. asking for help doing a will. 
And unfortunately, I didn't get a response. I thought that I might get as just some kind of automatic response, just like the number. It also puts his number in there. And, you know, when we called the number the other week, we got that answering machine. James McGill. But no email, at least not yet. Maybe maybe I'll get an actual response offering really to put together my will, which would be great because I really do need one. Jimmy's got a lot going on in his life right now, Jimmy. Give him a minute to get back to you. We got another suggestion on Mm -hmm. 312 Reference, which is that it must be biblical, that the Gilganites uh, have created a a biblical reference here, and that if you did James 312, Ah. it's like the verse and chapter, uh, that in fact... Chapter and verse, in fact. Thank you. I'm half C Jew here. Um, so it, it would say that the, the verse in chapter, chapter and verse is, My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. And the interpretation of listener Kevin Boyle of this uh, chapter and verse was, Can a University of Samoa law grad, go land crabs, ever work at HHM? Uh, you know, can a grapevine bear figs? Can a salt spring produce fresh water? Can, is Jimmy simply a salt spring? Yeah. Uh, and that actually, you know, that that's sort of I don't know whether Vince that's Gilligan incredibly intended profound, this, actually. but the resonance is there, Absolutely. right? I mean, Jimmy is sort of he is a salt spring, like he is naturally mm-hmm. a bit of a criminal element, and maybe he never will produce fresh water. And that's sort of what this episode was about. Yeah. I mean, in a way, his whole, you know, this whole series, all of Jimmy's personality is, at least in his current manifestation in the post-rescue by Chuck, is his exploration of whether his salt spring can be turned to pure water. I mean, can he change? And we know that Chuck doesn't believe he can change. And Jimmy, at least at the beginning of this episode, thinks he can. Uh, mm. But really, that's that's kind of the question behind the whole show. But this was Jimmy's meltdown. This show is about Jimmy's meltdown, his transformation of self, his aligning self-perception with reality. Mm. And it all began, I think, uh, with that scene in the bingo parlor, which was a, a scene amazing to me in terms of sound yes. and sight, the, the rumbling of that bingo drum yes. and the close-ups of the bingo balls rattling around in there and sort of uh, in su- somehow serving as a synecdoche, if you will, Ooh. of Jimmy's mind, which I feel at that moment was a rumble of, of jostling bingo balls. Yeah, we know that at certain times, certain noises you know, just become so loud, they overtake our minds. And, and certainly that was going on in this scene with Jimmy. Let's hear a little bit from it. We're gonna, so he's playing, he's calling bingo, in fact, and there's an unusual run of bees. So I don't know if anybody here has played bingo, but uh, in the American style, it doesn't happen in, in Britain, but... What? There's a, there's yeah. a across the pond, they well, play a different no, mode of bingo? No, they play the same, but they don't have bingo at- across the top, at least not how I used to play. So in America, the early numbers are under the letter B. So you get B5, B7, B12, uh, The you know, and it kind of goes through the numbers. So like the end of the numbers are uh, under the letter O. So um, in gay bingo, the, there's always a big cheer when O69 comes up. Oh, yes. And everybody goes, O69. Oh, <laughs> I want to play bingo with you, Jim. <laughs> or O68, which is uh, you do me, I owe you one. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. I'm going to use that yeah. one. Yeah. So anyway. Uh, Next time I tell someone I'm Kevin Costner. <laughs> Exactly. So let's hear something from Jimmy's Meltdown in the bingo calling old age home in which he explains how he came to be who he is right now. I wanted some soft serve. I gave him some soft serve. I did not know that his children were in the back seat. There was a level of tint on the windows that I'll maintain to this day was not legal 
in an Illinois licensed vehicle. But somehow, that's on me, I guess. Who leaves two Cub Scouts in a double parked car with the engine running? Come on. Now, Chet was connected, see, like uh, Cicero connected. So usually I'd be looking at malicious mischief, public intoxication, disorderly conduct, maybe. But he's got the DA saying indecent exposure, calling me a sex offender. What? One little Chicago sunroof and suddenly I'm Charles Manson? And that's where it all went off the rails. I've been paying for it ever since. That's why I'm here. So the great thing about this scene is we finally learn what the Chicago sunroof is. We'd wondered about it. We'd addressed it here on the podcast earlier in the season. What is Chicago sunroof? We had theorized. I think we were pretty close. We yeah, Googled, you were. Well, we Googled a news story about, a fact, in fact, a man in Chicago who had urinated or urinated is that, <laughs> through a sunroof. And we had posited that perhaps that could be a Chicago sunroof. We also had brought up a lot of websites offering, you know, like sunroof repair. Right. And we thought about making them sponsors of the podcast, but none of those came through despite mm. our efforts. So... We had sort of thought that it might have to do with some sort of micturation slash, slash excretion mm. through the sunroof. And indeed, that's what it was. We had not gathered that there wouldn't be children involved. <laughs> there would be Cub I mean, Scouts. There two Cub Scouts in a car with a car engine running. And those those windows were overly tinted and perhaps mm-hmm. were... I maintain to this day that he was too dark for a Chicago or a state of Illinois license vehicle. It might have warranted a citation, although what definitely warranted a citation was defecating through the sunroof onto the children. Yeah. A little bit of soft serve. <laughs> Uh, so I was glad that we finally resolved that mystery. So many still left, but still. Easy. What was that? We had the Westchester. We had we had a few other, uh, mm. the, the Westchester hot box or whatever it was. <laughs> um, but that meltdown, Jimmy just can't, he can't do it anymore. And I don't know if that meltdown was about the realization uh, about his anger with Chuck, because he talks about B for betrayal, B, B for, for brother. brother. Or was the meltdown more about what am I doing? I'm just so bored. Yeah. What am I doing here in this bingo parlor? When will this game end? This yeah. is not what I want my life to be. And he goes, you know, it takes a terrible turn. It, before the clip that we just heard, it seemed, too, that Jimmy was turning against Albuquerque. He was turning against New Mexico. He felt he was in some kind of Georgia O'Keeffe hellscape. And the sun was too bright and the, the desert was too unforgiving. So you could see that he his mind was turning to his earlier, younger days, his, his more irresponsible days. And he was kind of longing to return to his past. Back to the 312. Yeah. And he did. He did. He got it. And Marco. And so do you think that they named the character Marco when they, knowing that uh, they were going to use this two-syllable or occasional pimento broke the string, but <laughs> this this ending in O construction for the titles, because then we have Nacho, Tuco, Marco. It's, yes. it's like there's some kind of strange compulsion there yeah. in terms of character naming. Yeah. I, I, I'm going to say yes to that. So. And the name of the bar was Arno's also. Oh, that's right. Yeah. That's like, that would have been another another possibility. Uh, uh, some a strange peek through the keyhole of Vince Gilligan's mind. Indeed, our Peter Gould. Well, June, you 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 mentioned you yeah. teased, as we say in the biz earlier in this episode that, uh, or earlier in this podcast, that you were not a huge fan of this concluding episode of series one of Better Call Saul. What? Tell us, what did you not like about this episode? Well, I have to say, I am highly suggestible. So it could just be that typically I, you know, we've even we even said it 
uh, last week or the week before that typically in this kind of quality cable drama, the penultimate episode is the highlight. And then the the last episode is kind of a, a wrap up and a, you know, it's you, you the excitement and the big peak comes at the penultimate episode. So maybe I was just, you know, maybe it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. But I, I just felt that it was a little repetitive. I mean, it's funny because when we first saw Slip and Jimmy working with Marco, who we didn't know at that point was Marco, first pulling off these cons, I think I said then that I thought that that scene went on for too long. And for my money, it went on for way too long in this episode. So I, I just was kind of distracted. I was a little, you know, my attention wasn't fully there. So there was nothing that offended me or disappointed me directly. It was just kind of, eh. That was a long montage of short cons. Yeah. Um, it reminded me of that montage earlier in the season of the of, uh, of him in the courthouse. Yes. Working as a, as a defender for his clients and just like the coffee and the coffee dispenser and the clients and going True to court. And it was group. a montage that just went on forever. Exactly. And I felt that one also was like strangely a little longer than it needs to be. And this short con montage, I mean, I think some of these are pretty funny. Yeah. Um, but it went on too long. You are not Kevin Costner's manager, June. <laughs> I know so now. I think I would try David Duchovny. That would be my now, – now that I know that it's possible if you are drunk enough to convince someone you're a celebrity, that's – Well, you that's can, if you convince women who still don't get dressed before they leave the house and go onto the street, yeah. I think I would say that I was Tom Cruise. I'd buy it. Yeah, right? I'd buy it. Yeah. Um, did, so you – on the whole – you liked the episode? You you didn't show my disappointment overall? Well, I agree. I think that the scenes uh, back in Illinois, um, it could have been a little less of that. I could have used a little more Albuquerque. Mm-hmm. I mean, I got I sort of got the picture back in Illinois. I kind of got the hang of it, and I think it went on a little too long. Um, but uh, I overall enjoyed it, and I liked seeing this transformation in Jimmy's character. I liked, you know, we're now seeing him finally... Uh, grasp uh, what he is, what he is to become. And I liked that transformation. And I loved um, the scenes at the end where he's talking to Mike. Basically, everything that happened in Albuquerque, I thought, yeah. was terrific. And some of the stuff that happened back in Illinois, I thought, was good. But, it, but yeah, it, it was a little more of that than, than we needed. I did enjoy. There was something which, actually, we can get to this uh, in some of the reader email that we got um, that pointed out that there's a kind of a Rashomonic element to the show that is very subtly done so that you... Uh, only really kind of realize it after the fact. Um, So, for example, we've seen things entirely from Jimmy's point of view, really. And because, certainly in my case, I'm very sympathetic to Jimmy, I haven't always considered other characters' perspectives. And it was really good to see Marco just say outright that he always knew. He knew before Jimmy went off with Chuck that Chuck was a buzzkill that if Jimmy went off with Chuck, he would essentially still be in prison. Uh, You know, he would have no joy in his life. And that he also told him that Chuck didn't even like him. That was useful. That was useful to see that kind of expansion and just be reminded that, oh, yeah, I I don't always... um, that I identify too much with Jimmy, I guess. Right. And we, you know, we, other, we also got some listener emails talking about the idea of we've had this discussion about whether Jimmy is a competent lawyer. And uh, we got some emails saying, well, sure, from your perspective, you, you see him getting these wins and you, you see him um, you know, working on behalf of his clients. But someone wrote to us, well, think about if you're like the two years out of law school lawyer at HHM, you know, mm-hmm. you're, you're, you're Claire, the uh, two years out of law school lawyer at HHM, HHM doing all the right things with quality law law school backgrounds and working hard 
and unimpeachable. And here's this guy who clearly has a taste for felony, you know, does not have a superb legal education. Um, Sure, maybe it makes sense that HHM wouldn't want to hire even the absence of Chuck's decree. You know, maybe he's not the guy you would necessarily want to hire because he's got he's he's still slipping Jimmy at heart, as we saw again. I mean, him giving that up. It's like Miles Davis giving up the trumpet. Right. You know, that's his gift. His his telos is to walk the edge. Yes, telos, June. I said telos. I, I, see, I always pronounce it telos. Well, I'm probably pronouncing it wrong. I learned what it meant about what it means about four days ago, and now <laughs> I'm using it whenever I can. His telos slash telos, his purpose, his mission is to walk the line of propriety, and that is where he's at his best, when he's on that edge. Um, and and it's true, as Marco pointed out astutely, it's it, it, for him to give that up is like Miles Davis giving up the trumpet, and that's what he's meant to do, and he's not meant to be just an upright partner at a traditional white shoe law firm. Right. It would be a waste of his true talents. Well, and we also got another email, um, very long and interesting, from Eli Bard. And he said that he's utterly unqualified to opine on the significance of the copier codes, electricity in general, or close impersonal protection. But he was able to address something he knows a fair amount about law firms. Now, I thought I knew about law firms because I watch a lot of television. Because you watch The Good Wife. Yeah, I watch The Good Wife. I watch Suits. I watched a lot of Perry May. And actually, Suits, now I think of it, is quite relevant because on Suits, the law firm, they only accept people who graduated from Harvard Law School. And Eli points out, a firm that's worried about its reputation would not have someone like Jimmy's embarrassing credentials. Um, It's a reasonable business decision not to hire people without a certain academic pedigree. Um, and also, just as we journalists would never think of saying about someone, well, he just did a little bit of plagiarism. You know, once you've crossed a line, you're persona non grata. And we are just expecting too much that a law firm would simply overlook Jimmy's missteps. Yeah. And I'd, I'd mentioned earlier this idea of this, you know, second year out of law school student. Yeah. And how would how would she feel if she's up against Jimmy? And so we, the listener email we got that raised that was from Zoltan Ambrose. I've got it here in front of me now. And he says, you know, it's all about perspective. We are primed to root for Jimmy, but I just couldn't see how any respectable firm could hire him. He clearly had no concept of how such a case would be run, meaning this giant class action suit. There's no way any major law firm could take on an employee with Jimmy's ethical history. He's just a lawsuit waiting to happen. From my point of view, Chuck's mistake was the cowardice and underhandedness with which he went about denying Jimmy the job, not the fact of denying him the job. So yes, Rashomonic, if we can walk a mile in another person's shoes, if we can walk a mile in another man's space blanket, June, (laughs) then perhaps we'll come to see this uh, from a new perspective. Well, June, I understand um, your difficulties with the episode's limitations. I see what you're saying. Um, And I actually, I found, even though it resisted the cliffhanger impulse and perhaps we should give it some credit for resisting the the cliffhanger impulse. I kind of wanted a cliffhanger. I kind of craved a cliffhanger. I wish they'd left us with something to think about. I mean, okay, we got some resolution. We now we're we're on the path of Jimmy, the the criminal mind. Um, But I want, you know, I want a little something to hang on to. And there was not, there wasn't much for the shippers, June. No, very little for the shippers. I mean, there was a little bit of Kim and and oh, how she does delight us. But there was not enough. I wanted more development there. Mm -hmm. So I did, I was left wanting a little bit. I mean, I am eager for the next season to start. Sure. But I I wish there had been, you know, I wish someone had been in peril. Yeah. I would wonder, and we'll find out in a year's time, if HHM and any of the people or even Chuck will kind of still feature next time around, or if the fact that Jimmy has taken this step, has made this realization, has realized that uh, any lawyer who isn't making bank is doing it wrong, that 
maybe we'll maybe the HHM and his brother is just completely in his past now. Maybe he's just driven away and and just left them holding onto the doorknob. Just a new set of characters. But what what about Kim? Jude? What about Kim? I know, I know. That would be the thing. I like if I never see Chuck again, I could care less. Although it is always good to have a hate figure. So. That would be he is useful. really hateable. His, He's his so face, hateable. His face is so hateable. And again, that sort of Rashomonic quality of seeing him with Ernesto and what a bore he is and what a passive-aggressive slime bucket he is. Oh, All my sympathy apples. for him, yes, was just ripped away. Um, and then you see Jimmy's ease. You know, he doesn't call him Ernesto. He calls him Ernie. Ernie and Ernie yeah. wants to get a beer with him. And Ernie smiles when he sees him. And you see what a, what a big heart Jimmy has and what a way he has with people that Chuck just loves. Yeah. Well, and, you know, some of the, the, the email that you read, um, which I absolutely see where those writers are coming from, and I also know that they're right. But then one of the things that Kim did do was having seen how the clients from Sandpiper Crossing were so fond of Jimmy and really respected him and really wanted to know where he was and just had all around good feelings about him. They suggested him to, what was it, Davis and Maine to this you know, another good company in Santa Fe, a good law firm. And, you know, again, you think, well, why, you know, yes, he is personable. Maybe he'd be a good outreach person. But really, why would they? I mean, of course, he didn't go through with it. He he had that experience where he was walking to the meeting and then he kind of touched Marco's ring and he, you know, it was that sort of grounding. He, Are you grounded? I'm never going to ground myself again, by the way. Um, you know, and it was just kind of a like a physical reminder of Marco and of his Chicago slash Cicero life. And so he turned away from it. But you think, why, why would they have recommended him? Yes, the clients liked him. Kim loves him in her way. Howard likes him, I think, admires him. But they wouldn't really have put him forward for a, a law firm job. Well, he could have one of those fixer roles like George Clooney and Michael Quite. Clayton. He could be the guy you send when people, you know, have the DUI in the middle of the night with mm-hmm. the hooker in the car. And that's, this is, you know, maybe Jimmy, I could carve out a role for himself that way. But there were, you know, there were a lot of telos twists and turns in this gene because I, you know, remember he's at Marco's. He's just the woman who thought he was Kevin Costner. He's just left. <laughs> and he's on his cell phone checking his messages and he yeah. hears the message, the sweet elderly voices of his clients and the phone and that for a moment, that is what's going to bring him back to Albuquerque. He doesn't really miss his brother. I mean, a little bit. He feels some obligation. But mm-hmm. it's his clients. It's that his clients need him, and he feels this obligation to them. And he feels, I think, some emotional connection to them. And he says, oh, I've got to go back and do that. This was a fun week here yeah. in short con land. Yeah. But uh, I, that's this is my real life is elder law. And like it's it's something that means something to me, and I'm doing the right thing. And then it's when Marco dies that that's what brings him back around. It's something about like, oh, we only live for so long. or we, It's something about facing his mortality mm-hmm. that causes him to embrace the dark side of his soul and right. causes him to say, I, you know, to, to wrap up the episode saying, whatever it was that I was thinking, this doing the right thing thing, and where I had $1.6 million on my desk and I could have just chopped it up with Mike and left with it. And whatever it was that stopped me from doing that, it's never going to stop me again. Right. And you got that feeling, too, that, you know, we were reminded that Chuck had gotten him out of jail. And that was why he set on this path of righteousness. But I think what Marco reminded him was that his current life was a kind of jail. Like he had so many rules and so many uh, restrictions on what he could do and on his behavior and on him using his great skills that he just felt too penned in. He felt 
just penned in and fenced in. And he came to life when he described that west-facing Kennedy half-dollar. Yeah. It just lit up. I have to say I was really struck when they were pulling that con of how much... Um, that's a con that it would be very hard to pull these days because the guy sitting doing his paperwork at the bar would just look up on his smartphone. Exactly. He just pulled it right up, pull up pictures, yeah, yeah, it up. I think so, dude. Um, and so, you know, that was a lovely just kind of, you know, that one of the uses of, of the slight nostalgia, you know, the slight... I noticed that when Jimmy goes to Chicago, he puts on his large collared hideously garish shirts. He does. Uh, he goes back to the poly. He pulls the polyester out of the closet. Gone is the poplin matlock suit of yore. I have to say, when he went to the appointment, or he was heading to the appointment with Davis and Maine, he had that kind of hideous brown gabardine suit. Well, we know later on he's going to go for a lot of browns and oranges. Yes. It's just terrible. Yeah. This color theory. He needs a color theorist. Yeah. Because he really, I mean, it's sort of a Southwestern palette, I right, guess, in right. some ways he's got. But like that, with the orange tie with the brown shirt look. Is I'm like, trying to think what he is. I guess he's an autumn. I don't know. He's got that sort of reddish, reddish hair. Reddish hair. Yeah. yeah I noticed that. He's kind of an autumn. He yeah. and Chuck both. Yeah, exactly. Kim, on the other hand, she's winter all the way. Oh. Isn't she? Maybe she's a summer because I'm a winter. We have opposite coloring. Pale blue eyes, like swimming pools I can just dive into. <laughs> well, June, what do you think is going to happen? Well, we talked a little bit about next season. I yeah. mean, do we think it's just going to reorient itself around a new set of characters? Are we going to have a season-long story arc? We, I mean, we didn't – This, we had theorized. When yeah. we first started talking about this show, we had theorized, is this going to be a case of the week kind of show? Which we thought it might be. We thought maybe, you know, here we've got a lawyer and um, – Maybe this is going to be a case of the week. It definitely was not a case of the week kind right. of show. Nor do I think, I mean, there were some season-long arcs. The story of Chuck and, and Chuck's rift with HHM and Chuck's electro-impulse uh, fears. Um, I guess that was a season-long arc. But really, this was a show about one man's character mm-hmm. and him making decisions about what kind of person he's going to be. There was, you know, there were a couple of mysteries here and there, but that's really what it was about. And now we've we've resolved that, right? He right. said he's made a declaration. I am never going to let ethical impulses stop me again. I am on a road to uh, to criminal behavior, and this is going to be the new me. And so that's been resolved. So what do we think next season? Will it turn into a Case of the Week show? What's going to be the season-long arc? I don't know, but I think that we... Just the nature of this show, that it is essentially a flashback. I mean, we know how it all ends. We know that he ends up making Cinnabons in Omaha. So that's the kind of the cliffhanger, right? I mean, how does he get there? Um, We know what can't happen. So I guess the cliffhanger is essentially, you know, what's the next, you know, what what route are we taking to Omaha? How are we going to continue getting from A to B? And you know yeah. what, and, you know, it, and I say that I talk about like, what is the arc going to be or what, what is it going to be? But it doesn't, part, in part, it doesn't matter. This show, is, it's about the details. Yeah. It's about the beautiful details. It's about those close-ups of the bingo balls and the, the rumbling of that, um, just creating that in, in, incredible environment of his mind at that yeah. moment. And the looks on people's faces, like not, not so much the old folks waiting for their bingo number to be called although my goodness there were a lot of numbers called in no houses I mean I hope people were really paying attention to their cards like the assistant who was on the stage and you know she was there the last time he was calling guarding over the kitty notebooks (laughs) kitty notebooks for everyone um and, you know, just the kind of the funny looks, or you remember whenever he's been in court, the court reporter also, you know, just kind of 
has a puzzled look on her face. And there's something, you know, it's all about those puzzled looks. Yeah, or like if he goes back to Illinois, he's at the bar and he pulls out his wallet and he opens it and it's a Velcro wallet. And something about that delighted yeah. me. Just somebody decided that he should have a Velcro wallet and then someone, the Foley artist, had to put that <laughs> as he opened <laughs> the Velcro <laughs> wallet. And that at that moment, I was like, what a great show that they did yeah. that. They didn't yeah. have to do that and they did. Or I also noticed in this episode that Mike in his booth, Mike was doing the crossword in yes. his booth at the end of the episode, and it says on the front of his booth, no grace period in big capital letters. And I <laughs> oh felt like, goodness. how metaphorical. Someone definitely yeah. decided because, you know, Mike, here's Mike kind of looking for grace, right? And the, and, and there's no grace period. He, he's, he, and he's trapped in this booth that says no grace period in giant letters on the outside. And I was like, what a beautiful set choice that was. Exactly. Now, I have a question which typically would be a listener challenge. But since this is our last episode of this podcast, there's we can't really issue one. So I'm going to have to challenge rejected it. But what do you think the significance of Smoke on the Water was? Um, You know, the song that we heard the last time when we first saw the con being pulled off, the Rolex con being pulled off. uh, I don't remember. I guess Marco was was singing it. He was humming the song. And then this time, uh, I I guess it was the song that uh, Jimmy went off really he wasn't quite humming it he was really getting into it riding off in his car from the booth after he'd had his sort of his road to not Damascus but road to the courthouse uh, realization <laughs> well yeah it's a, it's a good question I mean that was Marco's theme song in a way it's Marco's theme if mm-hmm. you will and uh, and Jimmy was remembering Marco and I guess he was remembering the spirit of Marco the spirit of the con the spirit of living life in the in the moment and and making your living by tricking other people right. <laughs> and he was and he was embracing that I guess and that that's going to be his theme from now on is Marco's theme as for the significance of the song well it's deep purple deep purple smoke on the water that's created by some sort of humidification effect I'm not sure <laughs> what that is you know what June I don't care that it's going to take a year I'm <laughs> issuing a listener challenge a 12-month listener challenge you have 12 months to send us your answers and we will be ready come i believe january 2016 when this show starts up again or sometime early q1 2016 and at that point we will address this listener challenge all right i do have my own theory i'm going to share it which is that you know the song is about kind of uh, making the best of a bad situation you, you set plans, you make plans, and then the studio gets burned down. So you just make another plan, and that works out great too. Well, June, it has been a delight talking with you through these 10 episodes. I look forward. I hope we can come back next year and go return to the land of Bugs Bunny and Roadrunner, uh, beautiful sun-drenched Albuquerque, and do this all over again. Yeah. Uh, until then, listeners, thank you for all your comments. Thank you for listening. Uh, yes, and hopefully next year, Better Call Saul will air right around the time that Downton Abbey airs. So we can kind of combine both of our recapping shows and Lady Mary can come to Albuquerque and maybe Jimmy can go to Downton and that Mash would be awesome. Mash up. Slash fic. <laughs> <laughs> but until that lovely day comes around, thank you everyone for listening to this Slate TV Club podcast of Better Call Saul. And thank you especially to everyone who sent an email and responded to one of our listener challenges. Our producer is Joel Meyer. Our executive producer is Andy Bowers. Bye, Seth. Go Land Crabs. 